Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 136. And I walk joining immigration officer and say, my life is in danger. I'm seeking asylum. If you go to other Western countries, they're going to take you to a supportive housing until they process your asylum. But in the U.S., they'll take you to a detention center. Adafi Akporo is a global gay rights activist, the founder of Refuge America, and one of the country's most visible voices on the issue of displacement. He leads an organization with a vision to strengthen the U.S. as a place of welcome for LGBTQ displaced people. Born in Wari, Nigeria, he migrated to the United States in 2016 as an asylum seeker and is now a refugee of the United States. Adafi is among the inaugural winners of the David Prize, which honors individuals with bold visions for creating a better and brighter New York City. He's also a Logo 30 honoree, and his new book, Asylum, a memoir and manifesto, released today. I'm so excited to have Adafi on the show today. Uh, his new book, uh, my goodness, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's a hard book to read. It chronicles Adafi's childhood in Nigeria, the situations that made him decide to seek asylum in the United States. We're talking a lot about that story today. Would highly recommend the book as well. Go pick up a copy. It is a great pride read because I think it's really important that we are aware of the rest of the world, especially as we come together this month. Happy Pride. I hope that y'all are having a great start to your June. No announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Adafi, hi, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be with you. Me too. Yeah, thank you for joining me. We'll start with the question that I ask everyone. What are your identities and how has faith helped form those identities? I identify as a man, a cisgender man. And my pronouns are E M is uh, I'm a gay man, and fate. I don't think fate has really shaped my identity, but fate has shaped who I am as a man in the world. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, um, because I I come to a full understanding of my identity by dissociating from my belief and the basis of my factual belief in a particular faith for me to be able to find myself again back in this realm of being a religious, openly gay person. That does make sense. And in knowing a little bit of your story, especially reading some of your new memoir, faith seemed like it was really integrated in your life but also really oppositional because <laughs> you were a pastor for a while and I, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey 
you could see from my memoir, um, I try to reflect on my childhood and how fate played a big role in how I viewed the world as, uh, as a child. Uh, my grandmother, she was a very religious Pentecostal Christian, and she would dress me up on a Sunday. I would be one of the first people to arrive in Sunday school so that she can chat with her other friends. She would be like, meet my grandson, Edafe is going to become a pastor. And me, naively, well-talked in with my pants above my navel and my cock shoe, I'll be like, yes, I'll be a pastor like that. I'll clean the share for the older folks in the church. And, you know, it was something exciting that my grandmother and I could bond over this religious thing. But when I started discovering that I have affection for other men, I, I became scared because I've been told by the church that gay people are going to be destroyed in hell and homosexuality is a sin. So how can I reconcile this identity with who I want to be for my grandmother, for my parents and everybody around me? So I, I started struggling with my sexual orientation. And I just fell into a rabbit hole from there. So I remember the first time I ever had like a, a severe backlash from the church was when somebody tried to blackmail me in high school. And, you know, I didn't give in to the blackmail, so they reported me to the school authorities. And the school authorities reported to my parents. And my parents had to take me to a pastor to cleanse me from this devilish spirits, the demonic spirit, which is homosexuality. So it's kind of like conversion therapy, but it's by a church. So they will take you for prayers to cast and bind, to, to cleanse this homosexuality from you. So for a long time, I pretended like I wasn't gay because I don't want to go through that anymore. But when I was in college, I had this feeling that I wanted to meet another gay person. So I went on a gay dating app called Manjam. While I was in this app, I met a guy that was DL, he's anonymous. So we decided to meet. And when we met, he drove me to the place that we're supposed to like have sex and like have fun. And I discovered it was in a church. I was like, do you walk here? And he was like, yes, he lives in the vestry. Wow, he's a priest. He was hiding his sexual orientation. You know, that gave me a glimpse into my future. That I don't want to be this person that will always hide who I am. You know, the first thing I did was to go back home to my community because my grandmother was sick. And I knew that my grandmother was going to die because she was very sick. And I didn't want her to die with me still living that lie that I have pretended to always be. So I came out to my grandmother. She was the first person I came out to. I told her that I think I like guys. You know, she was in, almost in her deathbed. And she was like, I love you, Daffy. I'm praying for you. All will be well. You know, if my grandmother that is very religious, that I wanted to impress, could accept me, then... I don't care if anybody else in the world rejects me, I could be myself. This is how I have navigated my, my, my way as a religious person. I left the church, no longer a pastor because of that guy. And because someone showed me what it means to love somebody so much, that religion didn't matter. So I am in dilemma between 
my love and hate relationship with fate. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense because it, it is a place that there's so much harm. There was, there was a portion in your book where I, I think you said something like the role of activism, because you eventually started doing activist work in Nigeria. And, yeah. and I think you said like activism started to replace that same part in yourself that religion used to hold. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to hear about how that kind of went. <laughs> religion was the place whereby I found a voice. It was in the church that I could speak in front of people and I feel like everyone here loves and supports me. Everyone here is after my, my well-being. And it's like a community of like-minded people that want to bring about change in the world. I feel like that was what religion was for me. It's like, if you don't play part of the church, you will be ostracized fully from the community because there's no amusement park. There's no Six Flags. There's no gay nightclub. There's nothing. Everything is in the church. That's where the choir sing and date each other. That's where um, the, the, the old women gather together to create change in, 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 the, in the society. The church was everything to me, Sunday to Friday. And coming out as gay and being ostracized from the church, I found myself lost for a community where I felt like if I didn't have food, somebody would be there to give me food. If I didn't have clothes, somebody would be there to give me clothes. It was the stigma gay people were facing in access to HIV treatment that I found that sense of community again. So it was like an underground community in Abuja, whereby people who have been chased away from their family, from society, we came together to a new city and kind of formed our own church and community. We're fighting for each other. You don't have food, you can eat in my house. You don't have clothes, take my clothes. A nurse discriminated against you. Five of us are going to protest there. The police arrested you unlawfully while donating money to bail you from. So it was that same sense of community I had from the church that was transferred to that activism. And it's like when I'm speaking, it's like I know that I'm speaking to people that love me, people that supported me. And, you know, I said in the end of my book that I would never be a pastor or a doctor, all those things that my family wanted me to be. But I'm still an evangelist. And my evangelism is preaching to the world to be more brave, to be more welcoming, to be more loving and accepting. And I think that is the work the church is supposed to do, is to go around spreading their messages of love and acceptance. And I don't have to do it in a physical space, which is the, the house of the Lord. For me, that church can be where people are gathered to listen to a message of acceptance and radical change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing you say this is what the church should be. 
but <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, the reality that you have run into, I have run into is that often the church is not that. In fact, it's, the, it's quite the opposite of that. And in, I mean, your work now, you are a refugee, you came to New York City, you have done so much work now helping other displaced people find home. Like, I, I feel like so much of your work is filling that gap that churches, other people, I mean, it's not just churches, but a lot of people here in the United States don't do that work at all. In, in fact, they're actively against it. Um, and c could you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now? Yeah. You know, when I came to the U.S., when I was coming to America, my perception of America was, you know, the land where the, 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 the soil I feel with gold. Because evangelism was brought from the West to Nigeria. And we had Bonki, Sessiwinas, Ken Franklin. All these people influenced me as a child, you know. So I thought I was coming to this country whereby people are God's children. They are loving, they are caring, they are accepting. And I have met all those things too, because when I came here, I was released from a detention center and I was homeless. It was a group of church people in Newark that decided to pay for me to stay in a YMCA. It's not that I would have been staying in the streets. And when I moved to New York, I discovered that most refugees, when they come to America, they don't have a place to stay. So it was in that same vein I went to a church, the Episcopal Charities of New York, and told them that, can they work with me to create a shelter for refugees? And this is the work that the church is supposed to be doing. And they said yes. So they gave me a space, the Episcopal Church in New York City. And I created the first shelter in New York for LGBTQ displaced people. So when you come to New York, you don't have a place to stay. We will provide you housing. And with the community there, we're able to do advocacy on access to housing for displaced people. So now if you come to New York City, even though you don't have immigration documents, you can have access to the city shelter system. It was years of advocacy that I pioneer that made that change in New York City. And right now I'm heading Refugee America and I'm trying to do that work across the country. There's small micro organizations across the country that are providing social services for LGBTQ displaced people when they get here. But these are mostly located in major cities like New York, San Francisco, maybe Seattle, Atlanta, and Denver, but in smaller places like Kentucky and uh, North Carolina, when an LGBTQ person goes to a place whereby religion is really taking its hold, like the Bible belts in America, they still face discrimination for being gay people, and it's difficult for them to have social services or access social services. So what we're trying to do is to create a guide on how to welcome displaced people in places whereby there is still this purity culture on homosexuality and in turn affects LGBTQ immigrants that come to America to seek protection. Could you talk a little bit about 
some of the challenges that people who are seeking asylum, like here in the U.S., face? Because, I mean, this is an understatement. Like, it is not an easy process. In fact, it's a very damaging process. I think often you, you, I've seen you talk about like the PTSD that comes just from the attempt to seek asylum. Definitely. I, I think that you are right, 100%. It's a very traumatic experience, and sometimes I wish I could block my memory from it. But, you know, I think that the role I try to feel in society is to make these issues visible enough for people to see how cruel the system is to asylum seekers, especially LGBTQ-specific asylum seekers. So when you arrive at the border of the United States seeking asylum, for me, I was put on handcuffs and shackles on my waist and feet, like as if I was a criminal. And I walk to an immigration officer and say, my life is in danger, I'm seeking asylum. So if you go to other Western countries, they're going to take you to a supportive housing until the process your asylum. But in the US, they'll take you to a detention center. The detention center is a quote-unquote jail for immigrants seeking protection. You know, while I was in that detention center, I had to walk. I was being paid a dollar a day. So 31 days, I make $31 to be able to place calls outside the detention center or buy stuff to supplement my commissary at the detention center, like soap to wash my body or food to noodles, soup to eat. It was dehumanizing treatment for coming to seek protection in America. After I was released from the detention center, there was no form of support like, hey, take this metro card and take a train. This is the direction. Just open the gates and say, go. So I became homeless. Lucky enough, the church helped me to find shelter at the YMCA. You know, most asylum seekers who are homeless and LGBTQ tend to do one of two things in New York City. Somebody told me, if you have HIV, you would have had housing. So I'm sorry that you don't have HIV. So because I don't have HIV, I couldn't have access to a shelter system. So many people go, go get themselves infected or open themselves up to being infected so they can assess the HIV housing system. Or you become a sex worker because by doing sex work is a way for you to get a place to sleep at night or get money to be able to pay for a place to sleep. These are just structural problems LGBTQ asylum seekers face. But while I was at the detention center, there was a trans lady from Honduras. A birth certificate, she couldn't change it from male to female because in Honduras, they didn't accept that. But all her physical features, she has transitioned male to female. They kept her in a male detention center with other guys. She can be raped, molested, attacked, because in the detention center, most people come from countries where it's still illegal to be gay structurally, Socially, they still frown upon homosexuality. So that is just social issues we face. Then there are legal issues asylum seekers face. 
that makes it complicated for us to be able to seek asylum. Luckily, I got my asylum before I left the detention center. But there are asylum seekers who have been in limbo for more than five years. The asylum law was changed in 2018 by Attorney Jeff Session. Now it's last in, first out. That means people who apply for asylum after 2018, they have chance of getting the asylum hearing head faster. People who have applied for asylum before 2018, many of them since 2016 and 2015, they haven't gotten an asylum hearing. That means they can't travel outside the U.S. They have to apply for work authorization every two years. So it's difficult for them to plan for a life above this limited time that they have waiting for their asylum to be heard. This compound the mental and physical state of people who come to the U.S. thinking that this is the place of freedom, this is the place of acceptance and love. And I came here not knowing what it means to be a black person in America. In my country, we are 99.9% .9 black people, 100% to be precise. The white folks are like foreigners who come to visit. When I came to America, I had to discover that I'm a black person. And that means that in society, I'm a minority. And that fucked with your head in a way that you start doubting your abilities to be um, a full-fledged member of the society. I was lucky enough to get support from a lot of members in the white community in the work I was doing because we needed a lot of money to be able to uh, run a shelter. But sometimes the system is prejudiced against people of color and especially immigrants of color. And that is the reality we deal with every day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. issues that you're you're talking about these experiences that you're talking about they feel so interconnected like the prison industrial complex and the, the politics that, that are just so messed up <laughs> um it is. Like, I, I know like you now do so much kind of activism work here trying to 
change policy, change laws, and and the reality that the U.S. has the largest incarceration of migrants in the, the world. world. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, could you talk about some of the realities of of what people are up against in trying to come here? Like, I know you're already telling us, but like, just that that I mean, it feels overwhelming. It is so in. Before 1980, that Reagan became president, immigration detention in America was pretty slowing down. There was a Supreme Court justice that said that detention is an abuse of the human right of individuals seeking protection in America, that it should be abolished. But Reagan wanted to do a war on drugs. And Cuban and Asian migrants were trying to come to the U.S. to seek protection. And detention was supposed to detour and deter them from coming into the U.S. There's a very good book by Carl Linsdog. It's called Detain and Punish. And it talked about how Cuban and Asian migrants went on hunger strikes in the 1980s to fight against their family members who are held in detention center for a ridiculously long period of time seeking protection in America. But then it wasn't a lot of people that were detained each day in America. But as we progress to 1990, when Clinton wanted to fight the war on crime and the bill extended to criminalization of immigrants. And the amounts of immigrants who were detained in America rose because the prison industrial complex extended to black and brown immigrants. As they were raiding black communities, ICE will end up raiding black immigrants who are undocumented and they'll be moved from police prisons to detention centers awaiting their deportation. In 1996, children were being detained in Guantanamo Bay. This is like dark history of the United States. I'm Mm, sorry. mm. No, it's important. And the Obama administration was like one of the highest detention of immigrants in American history. 54,000 people were detained each day in America. It was federal law. So this is not just the Trump administration. It has been centuries of administrations trying to put a war against immigrants. But we we eat the stride in 2017 because it costs $201 each day to detain an immigrant times 54,000 immigrants that have to be detained. That's millions of dollars each year. So what I profess in the book is that there are alternatives to detention, such as the use of parole. There is bail. There is bracelets, ankle monitors we could use. Why do we have to lock people up in jail? Many people are fleeing from their country. They are fleeing from detention. They are fleeing from persecution. And they are coming to this land of the free, quote-unquote, and the only way 
we can integrate them into the society as the free country of the world is to lock them up in detention centers. But you know, America is the center of outrage and popular news. In 2018, when the Trump administration locked up children in cages, it was broadcast all over the news. And people made it seem like that was the first time people were locked up in detention centers. I was locked up in detention center in 2016. But our moral outrage was ignited because children were separated at the border. I don't think so. I think it was because Trump was the president and Americans were outraged with anything Trump has to do. Even to today, under the Biden administration, we have a law called Title 42, which have prevented 2 million asylum seekers, over 2 million asylum seekers, from coming into the U.S. The Trump administration passed Title 42, and the Biden administration has continually upheld it. People know it as Remain in Mexico. And Human Rights Watch have found out that more than 1,200 LGBTQ asylum seekers have been victims of sexual abuse at the Mexico side of the border. But who is outraging right now about the inability of asylum seekers to come into America? And I will say this. Rent, written by Jonathan Larson, beautiful author, he said, the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. Right now, in the U.S., as a response to the war in Ukraine, the Biden administration has passed an executive order that Ukrainians that are coming to our border are allowed to enter, but other asylum seekers from Guatemala and other countries from Latin America are still held up in the border. That means we can restructure our economy for war, but not the alternatives. And you know, when I speak in this in these broad strokes, people feel like it's too much. There is nothing I can do as an individual. But that is what politics and these conversations try to do, to overwhelm us to the point that we feel like there is nothing individuals can do. So when I was writing the book, I was very focused on the fact that there's individual level of action and the systemic level of action. We have to do both for us to be successful. I mean, would, would you be able to talk about some of those personal things that we can do? Because I think the systemic movement does feel overwhelming, but the, the reality is that systems are made up of people. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what can we do as people who are, are concerned about this concern doesn't even feel like the right word <laughs> outraged <laughs> i i think you said this in one of your speeches and somebody asks you oh this team seems like they are focused on the individuals and you say that individuals make up system and you know it's a beautiful thing to think about the impact one person can make in the life of millions of people I, as an example, a church rented a place for me to stay for two weeks. And somebody 
paid for a metro card for me to be able to go to my first job interview. And the church opened their basement for me to open a shelter for other people. It's the decisions of one individual at each step that have led me to being this person that is making impact in the lives of thousands of asylum seekers. So I think we ask ourselves, where can I make the greatest impact in the life of an individual? I think it's when they are going through a time of crisis. For example, I knew of somebody that was looking for a job. The day of his job interview, he didn't have $2.75 to pay for a train ticket in New York. When he got to the turnstile, it was 30 minutes, almost, it's going to be 30 minutes late for the interview if he misses that train. So he jumped the turnstile. You know, the police caught him and they arrested him. Because of $2.75, it means that job interview got a booking to his uh, name. And there's so many people that have train cards that they use it once and throw it away that could have helped that person. You understand? Some people have clothes that they want to throw away. They can donate it to Dress for Success. And Dress for Success really helps people when they are preparing for interview. It's like minute things that we don't even think about. It really makes the greatest impact in the lives of individuals. But, you know, we are going through a time of crisis that everybody's focusing on themselves right now because COVID has happened, there's a war in Ukraine, there's Roe v. Wade, there's a Canadian, um, the Don't Say KB in Florida. People are like, it's a lot, it's a lot, I don't know what to do. And I think that this is the time we have to ask ourselves, when it's overwhelming for us, how can we make it less overwhelming for people who are just coming to meet all these things simultaneously with resettling in a new country? And this is where the pressure in me kind of comes out, is that it's not only through money we can make impact, but it's through giving of our time, because time is the most valuable asset we can ever give. When a new immigrant comes to a country, it could be as easy as saying, I will take them to see the Statue of Liberty, or I will take this person for a stroll in the garden. And you're doing the person a favor, but you're doing yourself a favor too. Because by having conversation with that person, number one, you're getting to learn a new culture, a new perspective, and you now grow empathy for the struggles other people are going through. And sometimes you feel grateful for what you have because you see through the life of another person how difficult it could have been for you or for anyone else who is going through that difficulty. So I think on the individual level, we have to ask ourselves, like, am I seeing all I should see? Am I hearing all I should be hearing? What perspective am I not having right now? And how can I have that new perspective? Do I need to attend a seminar? Do I need to volunteer for a nonprofit, like a food pantry or stuff that helps immigrants? And I think it's those small acts that we can use to build. Because if I tell you, give money, do this, do that, it's too big for you to, as a way to start. It's like you, you have to research. What are the local LGBTQ organizations that are helping immigrants in my community? 
how can I start from there? Hey, I mean, one of the, the key themes of your book, and, and I think you say this a lot, is home is not just how you feel safe and welcome, but how you make others feel safe and welcome. I hear that in, in everything you're saying. How do we extend that sense of home to other people? How do we make other people feel safe and welcome when entire systems are against them? I think that's such a, a beautiful way to think about home, but also it's a challenge to us, a, a calling in some ways. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. If you think about what makes you feel at home, what comes to your mind? Like, I mean, I mean, for me, I, I think about comfort. I, I think about those, like those little things, like the sheets on my bed, <laughs> 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 um, or having a place to go to where I can get away from it all, where I can, you know, have community, have people over. Like, I, I mean, there, there's so many things that come to mind, but. Those are some of the big things, the, the sense of little comforts and space. And there is nothing you said that said, my home is this place in North Carolina or, or in this place in Kentucky. It was the things that makes you feel at home or the feelings that you remembered. Yeah. So... When we think about creating home for people that are coming here to seek protection, it is not only the social services we can provide for them, but it's also the things we use to describe them or the things we use to welcome them. When somebody's coming to a country whereby people are telling them that, go back to your country, you don't fit here, your body smells like this, your food doesn't taste great. You dress like a black person. You, you, so those things makes that person feel like they are ostracized from the community. And they start feeling a sense of, I miss my home. Because when I was home, all these things did not make me different. In my pursuit for home, I describe my narrative like this. I came to America fleeing persecution from Nigeria with the expectation of being welcomed by the gay community here. But when I got into the gay community, I was told I'm a refugee. In the refugee community, I was told I'm black. In the black community, I was told I'm African. In the African community, I was told I'm gay. So in every community I found myself in, I felt like I was the order. So I was fleeing from the fled. So that quest to find home, the only place I found it was the shelter where I was with other refugees that came from Guyana, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Uganda, that we have all been told that we don't fit into any of those categories. But in our struggle to find safety, we kind of found home together. 
there is a big divide between the gay community and the LGBTQ refugee community. There's a big divide between the religious community and the LGBTQ refugee community. And this is the most important thing for me. It's like, where do we stop and say to ourselves, why do I demonize members of my community with like their body structure, with like their skin color? Then if I don't have anything to differentiate them with me, I will use their immigration status. I'm feeling a lot of anger and also the sense of like desire to get involved. And unfortunately, like talking to you, reading your book felt like it's open and it's opened my eyes to these things. And it's it sucks to say, like, I didn't know. And I'm so grateful for all of the work that you are doing to educate folks like me, because I know that's a lot of it's a lot of work to do what you're doing. <laughs> Breaks me sometimes. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I imagine it feels like you're screaming and no one is listening. You know, sometimes it feels like that, but other times I say to myself that a lot of people have done the work that led me to be here. Like the gay community fought for the right of gay people to be able to be legally married in America. That enabled LGBTQ refugees to come here. And, you know, in, in trying to create change, there are people who are the pioneers that we do a lot of screaming and go away and you wouldn't hear about them, but there will be people who will come after them because those other people were able to live their lives on the ground. The new people will have a platform to be able to get their voices heard. And I feel that way sometimes, like maybe my work is to pave the way for others to come after me, to not have to feel this struggle and have other struggles to fight for. But it wouldn't have to be like being ostracized from the society because I have done the painful work of using myself as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. How can people, like in, in the work that you're doing with Refuge America, the work that you're doing to spread the word and educate, like for people who are listening who want to get involved, help with that. Like, how can people do that? Yeah, so Refuge America is trying to build the largest oral history archive of LGBTQ displaced people because we believe that by sharing our story, we can be able to create a lot of empathy and change in society in terms of helping LGBTQ displaced people. So we need funding. We have to employ people to be able to do the social service aspect of our work. But we also need volunteers. So uh, people who have experience in audio treatment, people who have experience in graphic design, uh, any kind of skills you have, you could volunteer to support our work to be able to spread the message to the largest group of people. Because um, the LGBTQ community have this, I think is an internal struggle to get space for their voices to be heard. And when people's voices have been heard, it's kind of difficult to look back and drag people up. 
like GLAD or HRC, they have become institutionalists and they see this as like going back to kind of create a new narrative is too much work for them. So they will just remain a legacy organization. And people still give the legacy organizations as if they are the ones on the front line trying to do the work. And it's frustrating, but I think they have done great work for them to get there. We need funding to be able to continue to provide support for people in states that are very, very difficult to get funding in. In Kentucky, in North Carolina, in Alabama, the asylum seekers in Idaho that need our help and we want to be able to support them. So, yeah, we need manpower and money to be able to continue our work. Where can people go to if they want to volunteer, if they want to give money? So if you go to www.refugeamerica.org, you will see a link to volunteer and you see a link to help. It's all information are there. Great, great. We have a we have a good team at Refuge America, though. We have a, a, a very good, an expert in communication, and I've worked with IS for a very long time. So it's leading our uh, program development because we are developing the first ever guide for welcoming LGBTQ displaced people in America. Because like, if you are a non-LGBTQ organization. You don't know the challenges LGBTQ people face, like historical ma marginalization, lack of visibility and acceptance, psychological trauma. So how can you provide services for that community? So one of the stuff we have found out from the VABA um, research we are doing is that people say that they would be more comfortable to assess service in an organization that have a sign of visibility, like a flag, or a story of an LGBTQ person or have gender expansive pronouns in their form. So we are using that experience from the aura history to create this guide for welcoming LGBTQ displaced people so that it's not just only LGBTQ organizations that would have to bear the burden of supporting LGBTQ displaced people. Adavi, thank you so much for joining me. This has been wonderful to speak to you. Thank you very much for the work you do. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Adafi is on Twitter and Instagram at Adafi Akporo. Be sure to go grab a copy of his new book, Asylum, a memoir and manifesto. It's so good. And to find out how you can get involved with Adafi's organization, Refuge America, head to refugeamerica.org. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on this show or just want to say hi, reach out. Until next time.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.